When I was nine years old, give or take, we, we had a, um, a little strip mall that sat on the edge of our neighborhood. You didn't even have to cross the highway to get to it. It was right there at the edge, maybe five stores. One of those stores was a little sporting goods store. It's called the Winner's Circle. And uh, me and my friends occasionally would ride our bikes up to the Winner's Circle and just kind of walk around. Well, one Saturday, I got on my bike one Saturday morning and I rode up to the Winter Circle by myself. And I went by myself because I had in mind that I was going to steal something. And it didn't matter what it was. I didn't have anything in, in particular in mind. I just wanted to know what it would feel like to steal. And so I got off my bike there at the store. I walked in very casually, found an aisle where nobody was, and started to look around. And then I found it. I found my prize. It was a shoelace. One shoelace, not even a pair, just one wrapped up in a little package. I picked it off, I put it in my pocket, and very calm, very cool, I just walked out of the store. If you've ever seen the movie Ocean's Eleven, very much like that, okay? And at least that's how I remember it. I get on my bike and I start to pedal home. And y'all, as, as I'm you know, turning that first corner into, into the neighborhood, like the the gravity of the situation starts to hit me and I start to get really nervous and paranoid. I'm thinking, I mean, at any moment, the manager of the Winter Circle is going to peel around the corner in his Toyota and just mow me down, you know. But he didn't. Nobody found out. Nobody saw me. I didn't get caught. But the more I pedaled, the faster my legs were going. And it was, honestly, it was kind of exhilarating, the fear and the excitement of that moment. But y'all, I pedaled home. It took me maybe five minutes to get home pulled up the bike into the garage, got off the bike, pulled that shoelace out of my pocket to admire it, and that's when reality hit. I was a thief. And y'all, the guilt came rushing over me, I mean, like a tidal wave, and I just started to cry. And I cried, and I cried. I, whatever feeling I thought I was going to feel, I ended up getting the exact opposite. And I thought, surely this, I mean, what it looks like on TV, you know, that, that's how it's going to be. No, I came face to face with something inside of me that I didn't like. And I didn't even know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do with it. So I just, I just cried. The truth is, I, I hated what I'd done. But I didn't know what to even do with myself at that point. It was really the first time in my life that I, I came face to face with the sinfulness in my heart. And I hated it. It was no fun. My kids love that story, by the way. It paints dad in such a positive light. They, all, they want to hear that story all the time. I tell that story, though, to tell you this. I've been a Christian now for 20 years. I've been a, I've been a pastor for like 13 years. And yet I rarely take my own sin as seriously as I did that day when I was nine years old. It, my sin rarely bothers me to the degree that it did in that moment with the shoelace in my hand. Now, I'll admit it, I, without hesitation, I will admit it up and down. I'm a sinner. I sin every day, just like the rest of us do, right? But I generally, y'all, I just don't tend to think of my sin as being all that bad. And maybe part of that is that, you know, I've, I've got a good reason for my sin, and it's easy for me to justify it, you know? It makes sense for me, might not for some others, but I can justify it. I've got a good reason for what I do. Or it may be that I like to look at other people and I esteem other people as worse than me. And as long as I can find somebody who's doing worse stuff than me, then I don't have to feel bad about the stuff that I struggle with. 
Or sometimes, honestly, I just take on the mentality of our culture. See, our culture doesn't use the word sin anymore. I don't know if you've noticed this. What a a strange, old-fashioned, repressive kind of word. We don't use the word sin. We say mistake. And everybody makes mistakes, right? What's the big deal? I know that you know what I'm talking about. Because I think it's, it's not just a problem for me. I think it's deep in all of our hearts to want to diminish our own sinfulness. Either to ignore it, to excuse it away and justify it, or to make a, uh, a cultural thing out of it and just call it something that it's really not and it's not all that bad. I think we all have a heart that wants to do this. Now, I, I bring that up to say, look, in, in what, what Wes just read for us from Jonah chapter 2 is a needed antidote to that, that defect in me, right? This desire to diminish the darkness in my heart, the reality of my sin, right? Jonah did not have that privilege, God did not allow it. God put him in a situation where Jonah had to come to terms. He had to come face to face with his own sin. And it was, in fact, the thing that changed his life. It was his salvation. And the same is true for us. Listen, if we, if we diminish the reality of sin in our life, what we end up doing, it's more than just that we're dishonest. What we end up doing is we end up diminishing also the grace of God that comes to us through Jesus. We can't have it both ways. We can't, I can't on one hand say I'm a pretty good person and at the same time say I'm, a desperate, I'm in desperate need of salvation in Christ, right? Because those two things are meant to correlate. They're meant to go together. Now, we're going to talk about sin today, but we're also going to talk about grace. And I want you to know this. When I talk about taking our sin seriously, let me give you a little, uh, you know, heads up. Some of us maybe grew up in churches or grew up in a family where sin was the main message, how bad we are, and you better be better than that. You better stop what you're doing and be good, right? Uh, and there was really very little grace, if any grace, in that message. And that's, that's not what we're about here, and I hope you see that to be true today. Okay? But the opposite problem is that we talk about how much God loves us, and we never talk about the reality of what it cost him to love us. And so we're going to talk about that too. Okay? And we see all that right here. Actually, we see it in Jonah chapter 2. Um, uh, that if, if Jonah gives us a pattern we should follow, he takes his sin very seriously, the outcome is not condemnation for him. The outcome is actually redemption. And the same is true for us. So let's recap Jonah chapter 1. If you were here with us last week, we looked at chapter 1. Very famous story. God speaks to the prophet Jonah and tells him to go to a city, a pagan city called Nineveh, because the Ninevites' sin has boiled over and gotten totally out of control. They are very bad people, and God is going to send a message to them that he's had enough. Jonah's going to go deliver that message. But Jonah, rather than obeying God, he runs in the other direction. He gets on a boat and tries to sail away from the presence of God, because Jonah knows what God wants to do. He wants to forgive these people. It's a mission of mercy, and Jonah wants nothing to do with that. Jonah wants the Ninevites to suffer and die for their wickedness. And so he runs the other way. Well, of course, as he's on the boat, God sends a terrible storm on the sea that threatens the lives of every man on that boat. And Jonah eventually comes to terms with reality. Only if I am sacrificed in this case will everybody else be rescued. And so Jonah says, throw me overboard and the sea will stop its raging. The sailors do and his word comes true, that the, 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 the storm ceases, the sailors turn and worship God in response to his grace. And, um, and so if you were here last week, and, and you can probably pick up just in the recap, 
Jonah's not the admirable character. He's really not the hero of chapter 1 at all. Uh, Not only did he run from God, that's bad enough, but in the midst of the storm on the boat, Jonah was totally indifferent. Not one time in chapter 1, in the midst of all of that chaos, not one time did Jonah pray. He didn't even pray for himself. He certainly didn't pray for the sailors around him. Jonah didn't pick up an oar and help row in the midst of the storm. He did nothing. And only when it was clear that God was not going to let up did Jonah finally say, okay, throw me overboard. That'll solve it. Okay. And so at the end of chapter 1, it, it's, it's pretty cut and dry. Like Jonah is obstinate toward God, and he is uh, facing the justice, the punishment that his sin has deserved. That's, that's the case, right? But when we come to realize that, that the storm was not sent to kill him, this is so important. God did not send the storm to kill Jonah. He actually sent the storm to save him in more ways than one. So we're going to be in chapter 2 today, but I want you to look at the last verse of chapter 1, which segues into what we'll read. The last verse of chapter 1 is chapter 1, verse 17. So Jonah has been thrown into the sea, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now this, that right there, that's the verse that gets the most attention in the book of Jonah, and understandably so, it doesn't make much sense from a naturalistic perspective that somebody could be swallowed by a fish and survive. For three days, he survives. That's hard for us to square and make sense of that. Who could survive in in a circumstance like that? I'm not going to try to prove to you scientifically that this could happen. Perhaps there is such proof out there. I don't know. You can go find it. Here's what I want to say. From Jonah's perspective, and Jonah is almost certainly the one writing the book after the fact, from Jonah's perspective, it's not strange at all. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't mention anything odd about it. He just mentions it as a matter of fact. And it makes sense, too. Okay, listen, Jonah worships God. God created the universe. That's the God we worship. He created the universe. He also created the ocean, the sea upon which they're sailing, the sea in which Jonah has now sunk into. Like, God created Jonah. God created the fish. And in fact, what we're told is that God appointed the fish to swallow him. God is divinely orchestrating this entire story. God is driving the narrative here by his divine power. So if we believe in a God who created the universe, this miracle right here is is honestly pretty small by comparison. It wouldn't take God all that much in his divine power to orchestrate an event like this. So if it's a miraculous thing, it's a miraculous thing. We don't have to prove it scientifically to make it so. Secondly, Jesus spoke about Jonah, Matthew 12, we'll look at that later. Jesus spoke about Jonah, and Jesus treated it as a historical narrative, that it really happened. Jesus believed it really happened. And your pastor doesn't have a habit of arguing with Jesus, okay? So if Jesus, who rose from the dead, said it so, okay, then I'm going to side with him on this one, all right? So if we fixate on the fish, here's the problem. If we fixate on the fish, we actually miss the whole point of the story. The fish is not the point. What the point is, is certainly in chapter 2, the point is what happens inside the fish. And you see that in chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish. This is the first time in the book that he prays. It's the first time that he prays. When he's, he's, he's literally hit rock bottom. Things really couldn't get much worse for him. Then he prays. And we celebrate that. Jonah didn't pray in the midst of the storm, but he's praying now. And here's the content of his prayer. Verse 2, he said... I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. 
I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Now, y'all, that is such an important baseline verse right there, this prayer. Because what Jonah's communicating in his prayer is that relationship is still intact. You see what he says to God, the way he, just, he cries out, he cries out, and God is not absent in Jonah's distress. You'd think, I mean, it, I, if you think about what Jonah has already done up to this point, it, the stiff-necked prophet who rejected God's call, who ran from his presence, who said, I'll have nothing to do with this mission you've given to me, it, it might make sense for us to think that Jonah has just totally disqualified himself here that he has no business being in the presence of God any longer. Surely, after everything Jonah has done, God is done with him. Can't God go find another prophet to do this? Sure. But he doesn't. You see what happens here. At Jonah's lowest point, he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord answers. He cries out from the depths, and God hears his voice. This relationship should be broken beyond repair, but it isn't. Because God's love and God's purposes cannot be broken. When God decides in favor of Jonah, despite what Jonah has done, Jonah can now do nothing to break that. God is with him. And right here in the prayer, we see a baseline of relationship that has not been lost. Very important for us. But we also see, I think, three really significant truths when it comes to how God deals with us in our sin. Three things that we see in Jonah's prayer as to how God deals with us in our sin. It was true for Jonah. It's especially true for us today as we sit here. Okay? Three things. First, we see God's justice. Then we'll see God's mercy. And then, in an all-important way, we'll see how the justice and the mercy of God meet. We'll see justice, we'll see mercy, but then we'll see how the two marry together, which is really the most important part. Okay, so look at God's justice here in verse 3. Jonah is praying, he says, For you, God, you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. Now, wait a minute. Uh, if, you were, if you read chapter 1, the sailors cast Jonah into the sea. And, and what does Jonah mean when he says, Your breakers, your billows, your waves passed over me. What, what was, what's, the, what's the point he's trying to make there? This is a picture, and Jonah gives us a wonderful insight into divine justice at work. The sailors who threw Jonah overboard into the sea were simply instruments of God's judgment. They were simply doing the will of God within the context of the story. But Jonah says, no, God, you're the one who threw me in. Your waves were the, were the waves that were crashing over me. This is a picture of God giving to Jonah what Jonah's sins deserved. He didn't just find himself in a bad circumstance. God, help me out of here. Jonah's saying, no, God, you put me here in the first place, and I deserve every bit of it. Um, Y'all, we, we tend to, I, I, maybe I don't speak for you, but I certainly for me, we, we tend to emphasize certain qualities of God over others. We just can't help it. And most of us do it like this. We emphasize God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness a lot of times over some of his other qualities that we de-emphasize, things like his holiness and his wrath and his righteousness and his justice. But that's a terrible trap that we fall into because with God, God does not have uh, 
his qualities and his attributes ranked somehow, top to bottom. All of the attributes of God exist in equal measure, and they are all full in measure. We could never say that God is, uh, he's 80% loving and he's 20% holy. Right? That's, that's not how God works. God is all of those qualities, all at once, all the time. Okay? So God cannot, listen, for God to be loving does not mean that somehow he can be unjust at the same time. No, love and justice have to, have to equal out. They're the same to God in a sense, right? They both exist in unison. And so if I want God, listen, if I want God to take my sins and kind of sweep them under the rug, and, and frankly, a lot of times that's what we want him to do, see, God can't do that. That might to me seem very loving, but it's not just. God can't look at sin and evil and just sweep it under the rug like it never happened. In fact, you know what? We'd be appalled if he did. If you, if you got to the last page of the Bible, if you got to the end of Revelation, only to find out in the end that God just kind of shrugs his shoulders and winks his eye at evil and lets evil skate on by. We would be beside ourselves. What kind of God would do that? He wouldn't be worthy of worship. That's unjust. We want God to deal with evil. We know it's right. But see, that's the problem. God's going to deal with evil, of course, because he's just, but that means he's going to deal with the evil, not just the evil out there, but the evil in here, right? The evil in my heart, too. That's the part that scares me and makes me uncomfortable. And so if we overemphasize God's love and de-emphasize justice and righteousness, we end up actually creating a different kind of God that we like better and not the true God of the Bible, okay? That's why, listen, if we don't take our sin seriously, we're actually doing something that God, um, that, uh, that God calls an abomination, in the Bible, it says, cursed are those who call evil good and good evil. If I don't take my own sin seriously, I'm, I'm being dishonest with what God has said because God takes my sin seriously. God is just. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, every transgression and every act of disobedience receives a just penalty. If God is going to be just, then justice has to be blind. He doesn't give me extra credit for trying harder. He doesn't give me a break but the guy over here, he, he's harder on. No, if God's just, then that means his justice is equal across the board for everybody. And that for us is a scary thought. It's scary to Jonah because he realizes that the justice of God has come upon him and that's why he's in the mess he's in. But you know what he does? He doesn't argue against it. He doesn't argue against it because he knows he's gotten what he deserves. Right? God, you are just. You cast me into the sea. Your waves crashed over me. Right? I'm getting what my sin deserves. God is just. Okay? Now, that can be a scary thought. It's meant to be a scary thought for sinners, right? There's no, there's no hope for us if we just stop there, but we don't stop there. At the same time, right here in Jonah chapter 2, we see the mercy of God. Look at verse 4. God's mercy. Jonah, so I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death, the great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. Seaweed, I guess. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O oh Lord my God. Mercy. You remember, where is Jonah as he's praying this prayer right now? Remember, he's in the belly of a fish as he's praying this prayer. 
The only reason Jonah is even alive at this stage of the story is that God appointed a fish to come and swallow him. It's the only way he hasn't drowned by now. And so we might read this story and look at the fish as an, as a, an instrument of judgment. No, the fish is his salvation. God has been merciful to Jonah that he hasn't died for his sins. And he sees it. There's, there's absolutely nothing he could have done to save himself in this scenario. The water encompassed him and took him down deep. He was to the point of death. Some, some of the commentators believe that Jonah actually did die and was resuscitated somehow in the belly of the fish. Whatever the case, he was in a bad place and he could do nothing about it. He knows that. He was beyond help. But God did not allow me to die, Jonah says. And you know what's more than that? He says, I have not received the penalty that my sins deserved. It's not just that Jonah's life was spared, but somehow in the midst of his sinfulness, he has been spared in a way that he has not deserved. Um, In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says it like this. He says, the wages of sin is death. Which means, what you and I earn... In our sin, what we earn, what we deserve because of our sin is death. It's condemnation. But Paul doesn't end Romans 6.23 that way. There's a comma there. He doesn't say the wages of sin is death, period. But he says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And what Paul is saying there in Romans 6, he's saying, listen, if, it's, if, if the only concern here when I enter into God's presence is what I have done, what I have earned, then it's a cut and dry case. I'm condemned. My sin takes me into condemnation. Right? God is just in the story. But Paul says, no, that's not how the story ends. Because the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What I earned is overwhelmed, is overcome by what I've been given as a free gift. Something I couldn't earn, something we couldn't earn. And that's what we have. That's the mercy of God that comes to us in Christ. But y'all, that that begs the question, how can God pull this one off? How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? Because remember, if he's just, then all sin has to be punished. How can God both condemn sin, punish sin, and forgive it at the same time? Because that's what Jonah's experiencing. Well, look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 7. Justice and mercy meet. Verse 7, he says, While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. This is Jonah's way of saying, give me another chance, and I'll go to Nineveh. But then you notice the last thing he says, salvation is from the Lord. There's a key phrase in this prayer that is very easy to miss, very easy to gloss over, but Jonah actually mentions it twice. It dominates the prayer. Look in verse 7. He says, My prayer came to you, verse 7, into your holy temple. See that? And if you go back to verse 4, Jonah says, I will look again toward your holy temple. Why would Jonah be so fixated on God's holy temple? Um, Isn't that the last place Jonah might want to be in the midst of all his sin and the punishment that he knows he deserves? Why would he want to enter into the temple? Why would he want to look to the temple and pray toward the temple? Well, here's why. What Jonah would have known, what we know through the Old Testament, 
is that something at the center of the temple called the Holy of Holies, a room held something called the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was something called a mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant, which was a box that held, among other things, it held the Ten Commandments, but laid over the Ark was a golden slab that God prescribed to cover the Ark, to act as a shield in a sense of the Ark, and it was called the mercy seat. The mercy seat laid over the top, and on the Jewish Day of Atonement, what we call Yom Kippur, on the Jewish Day of Atonement, the priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of an animal sacrifice, a sacrifice made for the people of Israel. He would sprinkle that blood onto the mercy seat, and God would grant forgiveness. Y'all, this is an amazing picture here. Inside the ark are the Ten Commandments. Have you obeyed the Ten Commandments? You may have tried really hard. I've tried really hard. But nobody, apart from Christ, nobody's ever obeyed the Ten Commandments. Nobody can measure up to the perfect moral righteousness of God. And, of course, that's part of the whole point, is that we, in our sin, we don't live up to the law that God prescribes for us. And yet there in the Ark of the Covenant, acting as a lid, as a shield to the moral righteousness of God that condemns us is a mercy seat where we might be able to find his forgiveness. The perfect law of God, if justly applied to me, condemnation is the only thing I have coming. But if the blood of another is given, then I might have mercy. Why does Jonah fixate on the holy temple of God? Because that's his only hope. Listen, the answer to Jonah's sin problem is not, cannot be, I really messed up God and I'll try harder next time. I mean, that's typically how human beings deal with sin. I really blew it. If I get another chance, I promise I'll do better. What good is that going to do Jonah right now? He's in the belly of a fish. He's lucky to be alive at all. He has no hope to do better next time. No, Jonah's only hope is to look to God's holy temple and to see God's mercy for sinners. That's why the prayer ends very appropriately, not with a vow to change, although we see that too, but the prayer ends with this phrase, salvation is from the Lord. The only hope he has has to come from outside of him. It's not within him. He doesn't have the ability to, come, to, to overcome what he's done. Only God can do it for him. Now, that is the exact story for you and me. That's exactly the case as we sit here today, that we, have to, we come to terms with the depth of our sin. Why? So that we can walk around feeling terrible all the time? So that we can walk around being, being um, legalistic all the time? No, see, all that, that's called moralism, okay? We don't believe in moralism. That the problem is that we're all bad, and the solution is we need to be better. No, that's not why we take deep inventory of our sin. That's not why we own our sin. We own our sin ultimately because in the depth of that sin and darkness, the grace of God shines the brightest. The grace of God is made most obvious to us. When we realize just how bad we are, then we see just how far God is willing to go to save us. So I'm going to quote the Apostle Paul again at length a little more here. This is from Titus chapter 3. One of the best explanations I've ever seen that maybe ever, uh, that's ever been written concerning what God has done in the midst of our sinfulness, right? I'm going to step out of the way so y'all can see it. This is Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's what we all were. 
But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom God poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see what Paul's saying right there? In the same scripture, we get the depth and despair of sin. Paul reminds us of what we really were. He does the same thing in Ephesians 2. He couples them together. Paul does not give us the solution without also giving us the problem. And the problem runs deep, and the problem is comprehensive. There's not a single person that escapes this. We all once were this way. But something was done for us. Something happened. God, in his kindness and in his love, sent Jesus Christ, who acts as the centerpiece, the fulcrum. He is the point here. That the hope we need is not found within ourselves. It's not in us trying harder to be better. The hope is what has been done for us. A sacrifice made for us. That we might not be condemned, but forgiven instead. Jesus Christ. Y'all, when Jesus spoke about himself in Matthew 12, we referenced this last week, Jesus makes this fascinating statement that was widely misunderstood when it was spoken. It was understood later, of course, and we understand it now. Jesus in Matthew 12, speaking to the Jews, he said, just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days, so also the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, would be in the heart of the earth for three days. Just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. What point is Jesus making right there? Three days. That Jesus is saying, I, listen, I came to be cast into judgment for you. I came to be cast into judgment for you, not for my own sins, but for your sins. And in my death and in my burial, I'm going to experience the condemnation that you deserve, that you and your sin had earned as a wage. I'll take on that wage and penalty for you. He was, he, was, he was killed on the cross and he was buried on our behalf. He was in the heart of the earth, he says, but the grave could not hold him in its power. And Jonah, what happens to Jonah, we see it at the end of chapter 2, the, the fish vomits him back up onto the dry land. That is a, a, honestly kind of a funny picture of something far more serious and, so, and far greater to come. That Jesus uh, wasn't spit back out of the grave. <laughs> that he rose in power because the grave could not hold him, because he had accomplished our salvation for us. All sin and death, he proclaimed victory over it forever when he rose from the grave. So y'all listen, we, we don't look to a temple and a mercy seat for our forgiveness. Wonderful as those pictures are, we have the privilege to look at a person, a person who came to the earth as one of us, who lived the life we could not live, who died the death we deserve to die, and who was raised again to show forth victory for us, for us, that we might have life in his name forever. We look to Jesus. You know, I, I preach this message every Sunday, I really do, and yet every week I'm, I'm kind of prone to forget it. And I just have to confess the truth. I, every single week I'm, I, I prepare these messages, I preach them with all my heart, and yet I'm prone to fall into forgetfulness as to really what Jesus Christ has done for me, what he's done for us. I don't like to think of myself as all that bad. 
And if I'm not all that bad, if my sin really isn't that deep, then by implication, of course, Jesus must not have done all that much for me. And y'all, it hurt for me to say that, but if that's my heart, that I'm really not that bad, well, then my sin was a kind of a trivial issue, right? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and Jesus had to come to make me alive again, right? That's the reality of my own heart. If I don't think I'm all that bad, uh, the smaller we see our sin, the smaller we're going to see our Savior. There's just no way around it. The smaller I see my sin, the smaller I make Jesus out to be. That he just kind of, he can fit in my pocket. That's all I really need from him. It's just a little help. When the reality is, no, I need his grace um, more than I can even imagine. Uh, let, me, let me quote uh, one of my favorite preachers, a guy named Tim Keller on this. I'm going to put this on the screen because it's a, it's a full paragraph. Uh, Keller says it better than me, and so I just want to let you see it. Keller says, many people sing Amazing Grace. We just sang it. And only give lip service to the idea. But that grace has not profoundly changed them. God's grace becomes wondrous, endlessly consoling, beautiful, and humbling only when we fully believe, grasp, and remind ourselves of this, that we deserve nothing but condemnation, that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, and that God has saved us despite our sin at infinite cost to himself. Some people have too high a view of themselves. God's grace is not stunning because they don't feel they need it, or at least not so much. Um, I put that on the screen because, y'all, that's me. So often that's me. That when I look in the mirror, I kind of like what I see. I, I feel like I'm pretty good. Hadn't stolen anything in a while, you know, got, got, got rid of that. Did any of y'all check your shoelaces, you know, earlier in the sermon, you know, make sure I hadn't struck again? Y'all, I, listen, and I think, okay, well, you know, I've got pride, and I struggle with envy, and I've got these things in my life, but then, you know, this is, I'm not, not going to go to jail for that kind of stuff. Therefore, it must not be all that bad. And you know what I do? I make God's grace out to be smaller and smaller. I only need grace sufficient for my sin, right? And if it's not all that bad, um, and I end up missing the gospel... And I preach this every week, but I've got to preach it to myself every day. Jonah, in the pitch black darkness of that whale, of that fish, pitch black darkness, and yet he got the clearest view of himself he'd ever seen. He finally came to terms with reality. Um, and you know, he got an even clearer view of God in the pitch black darkness of that fish. And that's what we need. That's what I pray for us. That's what I pray for myself. That if we're willing to engage in the darkness, it's no fun, but if I'm willing to really see and understand and take seriously and own the reality of my sin, that only then will I see and savor and delight in the depth of God's grace to see how far Jesus had to come down into my heart to forgive my sin and make me a child of God. Only then does the grace of God electrify us and turn our affections to him. He didn't come to help us out. He came to save us. And we need him every day. Let's pray. Father, we are, I pray that we this morning, um, the goal this morning is not self-pity. To just, to see how bad we are and just hold our heads down and, and 
and that's the end. No, the goal is, Lord, that if we see reality, that we can repent, which means we, we just we see our sin and we turn to you. You are our hope. Or we, we're not, we're not going to get better apart from a grace that changes our hearts. And so I pray this morning that as we recognize the true depth of what we are, that it would drive us to the cross. It would drive us to you, that we would be, be um, uh, enlightened to the extent to which you were willing to go to deal with our sin. You will not condemn us if we have turned in faith to your Son, Jesus Christ. Instead, we'll only receive your grace and mercy, your forgiveness, your abiding love forever. Thank you, Father, that in our sin we don't, we don't reach a dead end that for us is hopeless. That when we see our sin for what it really is, we're actually able to see the pure light of grace and enter into life. Thank you, Lord, that, that Jonah teaches us, even just in shadows, he teaches us what it is in our darkest moments to look to you, your holy temple, the merciful provision you made for him on the mercy seat, and the far greater thing you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. That we don't look to a temple, we look to him. And he is our savior forever. Lord, would you give us a sober mind to see what we really are? And then, Lord, would you electrify us to see the love that we've been granted? How deep Jesus was willing to dive down into our judgment that we might be forgiven. Let this truth change us, Father. Let it not be lip service. And we pray it in his name. Amen.